Alright, today's passage describes God's relationship to the world and how he is working out his purposes for the world. It describes God as unchanging and his purposes are unchanging. But it describes him working out those purposes in history. So if this is the case, uh, truth is not a term mentioned in the passage, but this passage tells us how we're to apprehend the truth. That is, there's the unchanging God, but we understand who God is then as he's working out uh, the truth of who he is in history. Let me read then from uh, chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. For when God, this is Hebrews 6, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I won't talk about Melchizedek this week, we'll talk about him next week. Uh, And he's going to describe then this priesthood of Melchizedek even more completely in chapter 7. But today I want to talk about the promise that is certain. It is an unchangeable promise. It alone secures, he says, our ability to endure in this world. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to talk in a couple of places. He'll talk about certainty. Can we be certain or sure and he's, always, and he's uh, going to use the term enlightenment. He'll say we are enlightened. And this stands in stark contrast to what we might think of in the modern period as enlightenment. Immanuel Kant describes enlightenment. He put it succinctly. He says, what is enlightenment? It is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. You hear how I said that? The writer of Hebrews is also talking about maturity and enlightenment. But he's not going to tell us that it's without guidance from another. In fact, he's going to couch it in this idea that it's only through Christ that we have hope for certainty. This immaturity, Kant says, is self-imposed when its cause lies not in lack of understanding, but in lack of resolve and courage. Emmanuel Kant sounds like (laughs) un-Hebrews. 
He's saying, oh, we need courage. Well, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We need courage. But Immanuel Kant says, we need it without guidance from another. The writer of Hebrews says, no, we need guidance from Christ. We need to be brought up. That's what this whole chapter is about. We need to be, have nourishment. Remember last week we talked about kind of the nourishment of a, of a field that's going to bear fruit. Kant says, have courage to use your own understanding. That's the motto of the Enlightenment. Use your own understanding. The writer of Hebrews is saying, no, come to maturity by taking on the reality of the understanding that we have in Christ. Rene Descartes is picturing the same thing in human knowledge. He pictures it as we lay a foundation. Uh, and really this is where liberal and Protestant uh, uh, conservatism have flourished. He says, I have entirely abandoned the study of letters. He says, I'm going to get rid of my library. I'm going to commit to the flames all those books that depend upon tradition. He says, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which can be found in myself or in the great books of the world. He says, I'm getting rid of everything. Only that which I, the truth that I have within. And he said, I spent my youth traveling, visiting courts, armies, mixing with people, various experiences, testing myself, and at all times reflecting upon whatever came to me so as to derive some profit from it. He's going to be the arbiter of what truth is. He's going to be the authority. And what we're left with in modernity and enlightenment, as Descartes describes it, he's going to, to say that I depend upon my inward self. And we have this split between the inward and the outward, between heaven and earth. The changing nature of this world and the, proje the projected change of absolute truth. Modern philosophy from Descartes to Kant locates the human self in a separate realm. That is, oh, I'm inside, or truth is, resides in some numinous place that we cannot reach. The writer of Hebrews says, is saying that the anchor of Christ is gone behind the veil and that we have access to the very presence of God. Rene Descartes is going to say, well, no, actually, we don't have truth in that sense, but we have it in a kind of disembodied, you know, transcendent form. Let me put this in simpler terms. Did any of you read Frank Baum's book or see the movie Wizard of Oz? You remember in the, in the uh, story that, you know, it's Dorothy is going to the land of Oz and in the land of Oz there's this great wizard who controls everything. Uh, in the book, in the, the movie, they're a little different. Uh, but, uh, you know, in the movie, the wizard, you remember, he's from Kansas. Uh, in the book, he's actually from Omaha, Nebraska. I, I don't know which is worse. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, a very unspectacular place and a very unspectacular wizard. But his whole reign is on trickery and deceit. You know, he's pulling the levers and making the loud sounds. And he hides behind the curtain 
and makes himself appear as something he is not. That is, he, I'm the great wizard of Oz. And then the little dog, you remember Toto? Toto runs up and pulls the curtain and there's the little man, you know, pulling all the levers uh, behind the curtain. And so the fearful image of God, uh, of Oz, gives way to this ordinary man. I think that the problem we face in modernity uh, is that the veil behind which is the truth or the final explanation is seen in one of two ways. Either, you know, at first Dorothy says, oh, we can never get to Oz. It's too, you know, we can never penetrate. And so it just seems like she'll never find out. That's one way of looking at truth. It's always behind the veil. It's always inaccessible. But then when the little dog pulls the veil apart, there ain't nothing there. It's just a little man from Kansas. And that's another way of seeing it, that there really is nothing special behind the veil. And so the book of Hebrews is saying, no, that Christ has gone behind the veil, that we have access to the absolute truth. Kant is thought by many really to mark the end of enlightenment as he removed the possibility of access to reality. And the big question is if our Christianity is still imagining the world as Kant pictured it. You might not think this, but understand that Kant is an heir of Luther and that we are all heirs of a kind of Lutheran understanding in which we have no real access to the reality of God or his essence. Luther, Calvin, dare I say it, Alexander Campbell, I think that the writer of Hebrews is contradicting what they're saying. He says we have access to the reality of God through Christ, where they are saying, oh, we really don't have access to the, you know, the transcendental God. Or, you know, the transcendental I or the uh, any kind of absolute knowledge. Of course, the end of this, you know, that Friedrich Nietzsche says, well, God is dead. And I think for most people, God is dead. Uh, that there is a collapse of the notion of truth. And this has left our world, you know, we kind of have the split between heaven and earth, faith and works, theory and practice. And for many, belief in Christianity is an impossibility. Unfortunately, I think this is actually being taught in our very the campus ministries, the various places that we're we're stuck in this modern understanding. I've read the quote from Boltman. I, I like it so much because it's so perverse. He says, "We have electric lights and the wireless radio. How could we possibly believe in the enchanted heaven?" talked about in the New Testament. It's ruled out of court. The writer of Hebrews makes a very non-modern appeal. He says, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Here is a truth made certain. Here is a promise made sure. Certainty begins not within the self, but with a particular understanding of God and his revelation to us in Christ. The writer says that 
listeners need not fear because we have an anchor in Jesus who has entered the shrine behind the curtain. And of course the idea here is God's presence. They can take refuge in Christ in the midst of the storm. You know, the picture is of a nautical term of an anchor that we can be secure though we are storm-tossed by the suffering and pain of this world. Nonetheless, we have an anchor in the very unchangeableness of God. The stability of God's presence is there. And Jesus' mediation of that presence makes possible our steadfastness. We have a security. We have a hope. We have a certainty with this anchor the believer has behind the curtain in 619. So it certainly, we all understand this is a reference to the Jewish temple. Uh, which I think that the writer of Hebrews is finally telling us what the meaning of this temple is. This claim that Jesus goes behind the curtain where God's glory dwells is key and it represents one of the central means that is going to really re-enchant our world. You know, this is, we've talked about, Max Weber talks about the disenchantment of our world, that we live in a flat world and where mathematics and calculation tell us everything. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, we live in an enchanted world in which God himself is made available to us. According to the gospel on the, in the uh, Mark and Matthew, when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two, you know, at the crucifixion. Hebrews refers to the curtain, it, it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. He never mentions like Matthew and Mark that it's torn, but it's a similar theme. He says that Christ has passed from the holy place into the holy of holies on our behalf, through the curtain. He exists, God exists behind the curtain and Christ has gone there on our behalf where God's, you know, this is Exodus, where God's glory dwelled in cloud and fire and a thick darkness. It could be interpreted here, and this is the way the writer of Hebrews is interpreting it, that Jesus' body has become the temple, the place where God and humans and creatures meet in a new, unique unity is to be found in the body of Christ. The church, right? Rather than emptiness, we find fullness. We find perfection. Now, two things here. God is not emptied out into the world. That is, this isn't all of God. That God still is unchangeable. He's still in the heavens. But in Christ, he's made accessible. So he's not inaccessible to the world. He remains in part behind the curtain. A place to which Jesus, though, gives us access through his humanity. If we endure, if we hold fast the confession and seize the hope. We exist now in the fullness of Christ's body which stands unshaken. You know, this is after the triumph of the cross. The world is shaken. We do not live in, you know, Descartes' body-soul dualism. I'm I'm afraid a lot of Christianity has inherited that, in which it's only the soulish stuff that is true, and in which Christianity pertains only to what is inward or soulish. We're talking about Jesus' body. We're talking about a corporeal body, the church, that has become the temple. 
The place where God and creatures meet is a new real world kingdom, a real world reality. Here we find fullness in Hebrews, you know, uh, it, it's uh, our, our sanctification, justification is through this whole corporate understanding. The body reveals the soul rather than concealing it. The public, you know, what we do in public, this is Jesus' point, what comes out of a man's mouth reveals what's in his heart. The public expresses the private rather than obstructing it. There is no private experience that can be separated from bodily and linguistic factors. Why is that important? Because what happens with, you know, uh, in Protestantism and theological liberalism, they're going to move, and by the way, in, in fundamentalism, a similar idea, it's all going to become pietistic. We're going to do our religion in our head and our heart. But what is pictured here is a continuous experience that's holistic, uh, that gives us, you know, he doesn't say, that it's a private language or that it's something uh, that is outside of our experience, but it's in and through our experience. The author says, we will be that house. We are the house if we hold fast, uh, you know, in 3.6. Holding firm the, the perfection, Christ's perfection, is available now for those who are attentive. So, God is unchanging. Point one. Point two we are subject to time and history. We're subject to change. But we inherit the promises through faith and patience. The truth comes to us in and through the processes of time and history. The exhortation, you know, is it takes on in 6.12, it's a hopeful tone, emphasizing that the promises are sure since Jesus, and we'll talk next week that he's in the order of Melchizedek, so throughout chapter 6, uh, we don't know, are they being persecuted? Maybe they are, but it seems the main problem is they're lazy, they're slothful. They've not advanced in the confession. They have not trained their faculties to distinguish in 5.14 between good and evil. And this is the problem Hebrews listeners you know, continue to face. How might we obtain perfection? How might we train our character that would allow us to distinguish, to have a good and evil and have hope. And the answer is found in the example of Abraham. The exercise of Jesus' priesthood and God's immutable promise. We have surety, we have certainty. The promise is unchangeable and it alone secures our ability to endure. So, what I've done, let me conclude. I've given you two foundations. There's Descartes' foundation, and it's called foundationalism. You know, Descartes was in Paris, he looked out the window and he said, I'm going to tear down all the foundations of tradition and learning. He says that I, I have built my life on these old foundations, I've given credence to these principles, but now I'm going to tear them down. And he's seeking for certainty now, and within himself through reason. He thinks that only mathematics can provide it. Maybe science. He says the truths of religion are revealed truths inaccessible to our intelligence. There remain therefore only the truths of mathematics, which up to this time had only applied you know, to the mechanical arts. 
He's assured that the soul and the body are entirely distinct. And that he's been able to understand his own being, his own essence. And yet he cannot know anything of the world outside of himself. Uh, And so he's pictured his soul as completely independent of the world. He's given us this dualism, and I'm afraid we still live in this dualistic world. Hebrews gives us a different foundation. It's the foundation of Christ. He recommends a very different course. Not, you know, Kant says, I won't imitate anyone else. I'll be completely independent. The writer of Hebrews says, no, we should imitate others. We should imitate Christ who is our model and the models of faith. He says we have the foundations, the basic teachings in 6-7, but develop like a fruitful crop toward the better things that belong to salvation. Hope, faith, patience that imitate the saints. And then he's going to give us in chapter 11, he's going to give us a sure and steadfast hope, a certainty. And all of this is only possible because we believe God is unchangeable. The wide, you know, the practice in Judaism that underlies Hebrews is that God is immutable. He's unchangeable. This is the one thing that the Jews learned. But then if he's immutable and unchangeable, how do we have access to him? Well, we have access to him through Christ. Um... We have an anchor in Jesus who has entered the inner shrine behind the curtain. We can take refuge in Christ in the midst of the storm. And storms will come, and they will be of many different kinds. But we will all be tossed about unless we hold our security in the, the anchor of Christ. He's mediating to us the presence of God that makes possible our steadfastness, the surety of our hope. Let's sing our hymn.